Hey, we're going to jump right into the Word, uh, continuing in our series, Finding Jesus in the Minor Prophets. Uh, and today we're going to be considering uh, one theme um, from the prophet of Micah. And what we're really going to be considering today uh, is the theme of forgiveness. Now, just I'll give a little bit of background on the book of Micah. Uh, Micah, uh, essentially the prophet during the, during the reign of Hezekiah, uh, is one who describes God's coming judgment on Israel because of its continued rebellion. So this is the common theme through all of the prophets. Uh, and Micah was the first prophet to, uh, to prophesy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire would destroy the nation, uh, leaving Jerusalem in ruin. But what Micah also predicts is that uh, is that God would one day gather and restore a faithful remnant and that he would set up a messianic king, uh, that Jew- Jerusalem would rebuilt, uh, be rebuilt, and that this messianic king would be the source of peace not only for that remnant but for all nations. And so God's redemptive purposes for humanity uh, is proclaimed through the prophet Micah. And what I really love about this book is there in, in, in the midst of these very intense passages of judgment, uh, God's judgment upon really extreme sin. And that is, uh, is specifically, Micah gets into great depth into the sin of the leaders of Israel, of the, pro- the false prophets in Israel, as well as the priesthood in Israel. He said, listen, God is silent He's not going to be communicating with you in this rebellion. And that silence has led to darkness and ultimately it will lead to God departing, His glory departing, because you can't assume to actually be one who represents Yahweh when you were consistently doing so much evil, bringing great injustice to the land and misrepresenting God's heart and His character to His people, which is causing the nation to fall into severe idolatry. Um, what we're going to focus in on are a few select passages that speak to uh, this powerful reality that, that, that anger, God's anger uh, at sin, is always directly connected to His incredible love for the sinner, for humanity. And that the reason that the prophets are sent to declare judgment is because the hope is that the people will turn from their evil and come back to right relationship with God. And what we'll see is that what God is looking for is not a people who go through religious form and practices, but once again and again, what he's looking for is transparency, honesty, repentance, dependence upon him. And this speaks to this incredible need that we have in our world today. What our world needs more than, more than anything else is forgiveness and peace. And I, I would argue that it is when we experience the forgiveness that is granted to us through the atoning work of Jesus, the outcome of that is shalom. And what is the primary uh, experience of the modern man and woman in the age in which we live is that of continued anxiety. Anxiety that I would say is directly connected to uh, sort of a, a, uh, an entire humanity that is plagued by just layers of guilt and shame and anxiousness. 
And what we have to recognize as a community of faith, those who are called to be a witness to a particular message, and that message is the saving work of Jesus, is that we believe that it is not until the church becomes empowered by the Holy Spirit, receiving the forgiveness that is ours because of what God did, not because of what we do, recognizing our own brokenness and our own need and dependence upon Him, for He who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. And what we need is, is to be a people who accept God's forgiveness into our own lives so that we can bring the shalom that the world so desperately needs as we bring that message of forgiveness to others. And I think that this message of forgiveness is actually woven through the book of, of, of Micah, and this is the theme that I want to focus in on today. I want to just begin with this verse here from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing to the church and saying, Listen, I I am writing these things to you so that you can experience the freedom of the gospel, so that you can actually begin to have victory in your life. But then he goes on to say, But if anyone does sin, which is everyone, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's saying, Listen, Patterns of sin, continual repetitious brokenness does not need to be your reality, but it's, it's going to continue to be your reality until you begin to experience the forgiveness that's been fully worked out. And what does he go on to say? He is the propitiation for our sins. So it isn't just God saying, I forgive you. He's saying the Father has worked out our forgiveness through the sending of His Son. Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, is the propitiation not only for our sins, it says, but for our, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so the work of Jesus on the cross worked out forgiveness for humanity. And how did this work out? How did this happen? And it's because that on the cross, Jesus, who is the perfect man, the, one, the only one who is truly free, and in his freedom, he lived in total dependence upon, uh, upon the will of the Father. And the Father's will, is in, in correspondence with the Son and the Spirit, was to work out redemption for humanity by Jesus becoming both the judge, as a, and as I like to say, the judged in our place. That sin actually does violate God's justice. And that sin must be judged. But God in His perfect mercy, in His goodness, in His radical grace says, I will deal with the justice issue. The judgment that sin demands, I will actually enter into the human story into the human predicament a world that is actually hostile toward me and i will make a way for all that micah prophesies to actually happen that is for the king of peace to come and rule over the world and here's the thing is is that jesus is our forgiveness and he is our peace and what the world needs is jesus And we need to become conduits of His grace. The human race exists under significant judgment. Something must be done about guilt. And this is why God sent His Son. To be a propitiation for our sins. And this is the mystery of the cross of Calvary. Notice, our forgiveness, our removal of guilt and shame is not He has given us a series of things that we must do. That's not what the verse says. No, 
He has entered into our brokenness. It's why Luther's Gospel is called the down-to-earth Gospel. It's because it's God coming down to earth. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And then look at Micah chapter, f- chapter 5, verses 2 and 5, looking forward to the Messianic kingdom. Uh, and, and look what it says. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Out of this insignificant uh, this insignificant group, and obviously he's pointing back to David, uh, uh, who is also from the tribe of Judah, the promise of the Messiah is that he would be in the line of David. But I like this. He says, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And I think that this speaks to both the eternal nature of the eternal son as well as the human reality of God becoming man. So he has to be God enough to save us and man enough to understand us. And it says, and they, that is us, <laughs> shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace peace cannot be experienced unless forgiveness has been granted in christianity grace god's one-way love toward us the power of the cross reveals a bottomless need on the part of every one of us The reason I believe that the church often fails in its witness to present to the world what the world so desperately needs is because we ourselves have not accepted the fact that God has truly forgiven us. There is something innately within us that says, he can't possibly forgive that. His love cannot be that radical. And it's because we still tend to think contractually that God will forgive me if I do this. And what the gospel declares again and again is God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. Accept that and then you will be able to live differently. When Jesus speaks of peace, it is total. When he speaks of forgiveness, it is not a shadowy thing. It is an actuality. It is a reality. Grace, I like what Paul Zoll says, looks on all that failure and it imputes. To impute means to ascribe qualities to someone that they are not theirs, that is not theirs intrinsically. To regard somebody as a person that he or she is not. Imputation calls bad things by a good name, and this is what grace does. God declares us righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because what Jesus has done for us. And because we are covered by the Son, we can claim for ourselves that beautiful word, but the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. This is the forgiveness that comes. And what Micah is looking forward to is the King of Peace. And the only reason he is called the King of Peace is because he has worked out forgiveness for humanity. And this is what the church is called to bring to the world. So, What I want us to consider today is this. Forgiveness comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, because, first of all, we are broken and beloved. Secondly, it comes as radical grace and covenant faithfulness, and it creates within us, third, the ability to love without boundaries. Okay, so first of all, forgiveness comes to us because we are broken and beloved. Now look what the 
prophet Micah writes about himself. He's been bringing all this condemnation upon the nation of Israel. He's been condemning the leaders, the priests, the false prophets. And he's saying, listen, you were taking advantage of the people. You were doing these things. This continual rebellion. God is going to bring destruction on the land. But through that, through that judgment, He is going to restore and bring about something altogether new. And he's looking forward to the gospel, forward to King Jesus. Uh, and, and this is what I think is so powerful, is the prophet who actually even declares about himself that he is strong for he has within himself the power of God's justice, uh, the spirit of God's justice, and, and is confident in his calling and his communication on behalf of God. And yet he says here about himself, recognizing that sin is a human dilemma. It's not somebody else's problem. It's all of our problem. And he says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. In other words, what Micah is showing us is the only difference between him and those whom he's bringing God's condemnation upon is his recognition that God alone can actually work out our sinfulness. That God alone can actually bring about the, the appropriate justice that our sin demands. And what, what Micah shows us is that the only difference between him and the very people he's condemning is that he is casting himself in, totally, in total dependence upon Yahweh for forgiveness when, when those who Micah is proclaiming uh, God's judgment on are continuing in their pride to hide their sin behind an external religiousness that is actually not honest or real and God is not actually real to them in fact they are they're so depraved that God has they, they've stopped the ability to even hear from God and they obviously continue to reject the message of the true prophet listening instead to their false prophets who are saying God is here to basically be for you a cosmic Santa Claus declaring over the people prosperity and peace when in actuality Babylon in Assyria is going to bring Israel to ruins and so what Micah is showing us is that he doesn't see himself as without sin. He sees himself as one who is just as sinful as everyone else. But the difference is, is that he recognizes the only hope is to look forward by faith to what is coming. The promise of God to send forth a Messiah, to bring forth a new way. And so this always, I always say is that the Old Testament, they are looking forward by faith to the cross in the new, and this is what we have in Hebrews and the whole beautiful chapter on, on the hall of faith <laughs> when he goes through all the great people of faith in the Old Testament. In the New Testament and, and forward from us, we look back to the work of the cross, but forgiveness comes to us all the same way through the atoning work of Jesus. And I think that this is so powerful because the broken, which is what we all are, needs to be balanced with the recognition that we are beloved. Blessedness or a happy life consists of forgiveness. There is compassion in God's anger. He is angry at sin because it robs Him of what He loves, which is you. 
And what we need to understand as a church is that if we want to actually be conduits by which the very peace that Micah says is coming through the Messiah and he has come and we are to be, we are to be a representation of his kingdom, uh, a, the, a part of it that is going to come in full when he returns, how are we representing to the world King Jesus today? Are we representing a king that is quick to judge and slow to forgive? Or are we representing a king who has met us in our own brokenness and because we know how fundamentally flawed and broken we are and we are comfortable being vulnerable about that brokenness, transparent even about it, even uncomfortably transparent. I heard, it's so funny, I was in London and there was this huge this pastor, I won't say his name, who is a, a really well-known, one of the biggest churches in America, and him and his wife were up there speaking and they were talking about the necessity of vulnerability from church leaders. And then they went on to talk about, you know, kind of like a pseudo-vulnerable story about their own life without it being at all vulnerable on any level. There was nothing. I'm like, you just, you know, let us on like you were going to give us some deep, dark secret about your life and then it was still totally guarded. Completely. There was, there was like, you talked about vulnerability. You said there's been some challenges with no, no discussion about what the challenge was. Now, I don't think that, it, that you want to necessarily have your pastor declare every deep, dark secret that's going through their mind every moment of every day. I do believe that, that I would rather err on the side of vulnerability and confessional preaching uh, because I believe that that is the key to actually being conduits of radical grace. If we can be real about how messed up we are and how desperately we need grace, we actually then have the ability, it is in that humility that we're able to become conduits by which the Holy Spirit can draw others into the love of Jesus. And this is why I think it's important for us to have that, that tension, is that we are broken, but we are also beloved. And if you want to see how this works, uh, if, look at Psalm 32, because this is very much in connection to Micah 7, it is, Micah is defining for us what is, what is written in the Psalms. In Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5, we see because we are broken, we need to confess. And because we are loved, we are forgiven. And notice, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then, notice, this is David, who actually committed adultery, uh, committed unbelievable sins against God. And, and believe me, his ability to write about forgiveness doesn't mean that we should feel good about uh, entering into the kind of sin that David committed because he made an absolute mess of his family life. But he still is able to point us to the reality of God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is dependent upon a God who is willing to forgive. And he is willing to forgive. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When I refused to confess, when I held the sin in, when I hid behind lies, I literally began to deteriorate from the inside out through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God will judge sin. He disciplines those whom he loves. But he disciplines us because he loves us. And he, he doesn't want us to feel comfortable in sin because sin does something horrible to God's children. It kills us. 
The wages of sin is death. He wants us to be a people that continually confess it, allowing it, reminding ourselves that it is nailed to the cross. This is why we don't look through the cross. We look to the cross each and every day. Dependence, why we need the gospel preached to ourselves. It's not like you get saved and then graduate past the gospel and get on your new sanctification ladder. That's not the goal. No, the goal is that in a, in a daily spirit of, Lord Jesus, I need forgiveness today because I couldn't even get out of bed without breaking your commandments. My thought life is completely wandering and distracted. How often do you pray and all of a sudden you're thinking about an order on Amazon? And that's never happened to me. That's not, that was, that, Darcy shared that. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> But you think about the distractibility. Some of you right now are distracted. Sinners. (laughs) All of us. Broken. We are fundamentally messed up. We're so glitchy. And it's not just the sin within us, but we are the the products of an accumulation of of an entire humanity that is entrenched in sin. Our parents' sin. Our sin. Our grandparents' sin. Our friends' sin. And all of it collectively oppresses us. And this is why the world needs so desperately to know that forgiveness is real. And that alone is the pathway to peace. And he goes on to say, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I was actually struck by there was a couple early on a door of hope uh in which uh in which the husband uh while away on a business trip uh, had too much to drink and ended up having a, a sexual interaction with with a co-worker uh, and he was so overwhelmed with this unbelievable guilt that he confessed it to his wife the next day And when he showed up at the airport in Portland, his wife was there to pick him up. And she drove him straight to their house and she had prepared him his favorite meal. And he said the thing that unhinged him the most was that the confession led to unmerited grace and favor. And actually it was the grace of his wife toward him being literally a conduit of Jesus that grace is not fair because he did not deserve that. <laughs> but in doing that, it brought out a full, a full honesty and brokenness where a huge part of their testimony in the power of God's forgiveness is actually in the ability for us to reflect that same sort of gracious forgiveness and that willingness to confess our brokenness. To not hide our sin, nor should we be, nor should we be reluctant to offer forgiveness. Both sides give us the incredible picture of what happens when we confess to a God who is quick to say, you're already forgiven. That's why you need to continue to confess it so that you can be reminded of how forgiving I am. This is why it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin leaves the body through the mouth. If we want to be a church that is unleashed for the gospel, we can't proclaim grace and be reluctant to accept forgiveness. But forgiveness comes when we confess sin to one another so that we can be free from that 
that we can go out and then become conduits of God's love. Because we are broken, we confess. Because we are loved, we are forgiven. Forgiveness comes to us because we are broken and beloved. And this is the power of what Micah recognizes. In the midst of all the condemnation he brings to Israel, he places himself in the same In the same group, I also am a sinner, but the difference is I cast myself in dependence upon God who alone can bring forgiveness into my life. I trust Him that He will work out the mess of my own life, that He alone is the vehicle by which I can walk upright because I'm looking up to Him. What is Micah calling the people to? To be sinless? No, he's calling them to repentance to continue to trust Yahweh in spite of their brokenness. But the problem with sin is that sin blinds us to our own sinfulness. Secondly, because we are broken, we confess. Because we are loved, we are forgiven. But forgiveness comes to us as radical grace and covenant faithfulness. And this is why I want us to look at the very last passage of Micah. It's such a beautiful passage of hope. And it's a deep reflection upon the character of God. Micah wants us to end on the note of understanding who God is, what God is like, and that, and that this is what God is like. Who is a God like you? You know what's fascinating about those words in the Hebrew? Um, who is like Yahweh is actually what the name Micah means. And I think that it's, it's so beautiful that his name becomes a ref, reflection of his entire letter. And look, what, why, what is he so blown away by? That God is pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever. Anger is not going to be a part of God's continual story. But no, we are moving toward a culmination in which God will put right all that is wrong. And we are called as a people to live with that hope. But look at this, because he delights, what does he delight in? He delights in steadfast love. This shows us something that is so profound about God, that his love for us is not dependent upon us. We are broken. We are the accumulation of sin from within and from without. We are fundamentally unworthy of God's graciousness, but God, who doesn't need us and Listen, I can't get my head around why He would save us. He chooses to not exist without us. What a powerful reality that is. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under, underfoot. You will cast all our sins. And then He just directly addresses God. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers. Forgiveness comes to us as radical grace and covenant faithfulness. A one-way love that comes from God that is directly connected to his covenant faithfulness. A commitment to fulfill the promises that he has made. God is true to his own character. You know, what's so powerful about this passage is what Micah is able to do here reveals the maturity, the spiritual maturity of his character. Because don't think that Micah, the prophets of Israel, were devastated at what God was going to bring as far as judgment is concerned. But the ability to hold tenaciously to the belief that God is good 
and that He is gracious and that His anger will be closed down and that compassion and steadfast love is the primary thrust. As Tim always liked to say, he, he tips the scales toward mercy. The spiritual maturity is the ability to see God's mercies as new every day, to receive His grace every moment of every day in spite of the fact that life is difficult and hard. Maturity is the outcome of being secure in, of being secure in the love of another. And what I mean by that is that people often ask me, what does it look like to be spiritually mature as a Christian? Does it mean that you read your Bible every day and know it inside and out? I mean, I've known, I, I, I've known people that have had almost the entire New Testament memorized and it didn't necessarily make them spiritually mature. It's cool. It's cool, though. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen people that are regular attenders at church and regular givers. But is that the definition of maturity? One whose attendance is great. I know that the, the thing that actually is the catalyst for spiritual maturity is one who knows in the depth of their being that even on their worst day, God is crazy about them. I actually believe that spiritual maturity is anchored in a deep, calm confidence that God really loves me. This is why Paul, when he addresses weak Christians with mature Christians in Romans, if you notice, the ones that he refers to as weak are the ones that tend to be the most rigid in their religious observances. And he tells those who are more mature in their faith to not actually hold their freedom that they have found in the gospel over those that are weaker in the faith. We often think of the immature believer as the one that is not as disciplined, uh, not as religiously astute, and we view, the, uh, and we view the, the mature believer as the one who crosses all their T's and dots all their I's. But I can promise you that the religious leaders that Micah was condemning was doing those things. And so were the religious leaders of Jesus' day who he had no kind words for. They were not lacking in piousness. What they lacked was relationship and a knowledge that they are loved. And because of that, they did not have love for the very people they were called to serve. Micah shows he gets it because he gets what God is like. And I think that this is one of the key things. why Tozer said the most important thing about us is what we think about God. C.S. Lewis said the most important thing about us is what God thinks about us. They're both right. It's very important that we have right ideas about God, that we allow God's word to define for us what God is like. But often we, we apply our false understanding of God. In fact, often we think of, you think about God as your father and you had a, not a great father. It can be difficult. You're, you're, your whole grid can be messed up by that. And this is why we need to be a people of the Word, humbly coming before God and recognizing, no, He is a God who is available. A God whose love for you is unwavering because it flows out of Him. It doesn't come because of what you've done. I think that that's a hard thing for people to accept because it challenges our own self-worth because we are taught that we are the masters of our own future. 
that we are in control of our existence, but what Scripture declares is that sin has bound the will and that we are limited by that sin and that we cannot actually reach the heights of what we hope for And this is why we need a Savior. If you were capable of freeing yourself from the dominance of sin in your life, you wouldn't need a Savior. God would not need to die the horrible death that He died to prove His love for us and to reveal to us that sin had to be dealt with once and for all through the perfect sacrifice. This is why it says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Finally, forgiveness creates within us The ability to love without boundaries. I'm going to go back to Micah 6, which I think is interesting in its placement in the letter, is that Micah says to to those whom he's declaring God's coming judgment, he says, will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he says, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require? What is good and what does God require? And he says, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Notice the condemnation is that the covenant has been turned into a contract. That, that we compound our brokenness by refusing to repent by suggesting that God can be purchased. His favor can be purchased by our good deeds. I I was thinking about that. Do people really do that? Do you think you can buy off God? And I actually was struck by a dear friend of mine uh, who actually did that very thing. He was a man of unbelievable wealth and success who utilized the millions and millions of dollars that he made to, to help fund many organizations like Young Life and the helping of the building of, of camps and, and all of these things. And, and he even shared with me recently that he felt he was living this duplicitous life, uh, a life that was actually marked by a long history of significant sexual immorality that ended up with him being arrested for trying to hire a prostitute. And it was a sting. And it came out after all his children grown, long time married, pillars in the community, uh, one of the largest hedge funds in America, a multiple billion dollar hedge fund reduced in less than two weeks to 200 million. That seems significant. It's not when you're running three billion. His face mugshot on every major news channel. His children being discovering that he had lived this, this duplicitous life, this sexually immoral life. I remember his, his story is so profound. He said that he was asked to, to, he had to, he realized he had to go share with his mom before she saw it on TV. And his mom, being older, he gets to her house and he collapses in anxiety. He feels, thinks he's having a heart attack. His brother brings him back to his house where he sits on a chair and while he's on the chair, he has this this unbelievable anxiety and panic attack. Uh, and, and what really brought it on was hearing his daughter's voice screaming, a blood-curdling scream, how could you do this? Over the phone. And he just is unhinged. And all of a sudden, while he's laying there in this just unbelievable brokenness and the humiliation of his sins being played out for the whole world to see, he is given this vision and he says, 
he said it was like it was like a deck of cards and on each card there was an image of the sexual immorality that he had committed going back to when he was a child and it was like each image came before him and then as they came they flew out the window gone and then he hears the voice of god literally the spirit speak to him you're forgiven and he receives the forgiveness and he said he could not stop laughing and then everyone just thought he was going crazy and as he began to, to laugh, he just felt this overwhelming sense of this, the, the guilt of just all of these years of sin. And he told me, he's like, I kept giving large amounts of money to the kingdom because I thought I could buy off God, essentially. That if I was doing all this good, that he would overlook this area of my life, leave it untouched. But that's not the way that sin works. And as it left his body, he experienced for the first time and we wrestle about this. Was he, a, was he Christian before or did he get saved in this moment? It doesn't matter. What he experienced for the first time in his life was real Christian liberty. The freedom that comes through the weight of sin being removed from your life. And the most powerful part of the story was his wife, uh, who is an amazing... And these, these two people are like family to me. When I saw it on the news, I was devastated. It was early days of Door of Hope. And, and what was powerful, they contacted me after this all went down a couple weeks and asked if I would serve them communion. And we hadn't moved into our Northeast building, and so it was still empty. And I showed up and I prepared communion for them, and then they had me play them a couple worship songs, and then I served them communion. And, and his wife begins to share with me how the Lord told her, she, after everything happened, she left for like a day and just prayed. And while she was gone, God basically told her, to not ask any questions about the infidelities, but to actually nail all of it, all the pain, everything to the cross, and be a conduit of grace to her husband. Now their marriage, they're inseparable. It's their, 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 their ministry is actually deeply connected to this fundamental, ugly brokenness. In fact, my friend would say it's the best thing that ever happened to him. And how can we say that? Because to lose everything when it comes to our position in life, and I mean, we're talking the most wild financial successes that you can imagine. And yet, he would say it all was meaningless in comparison to the forgiveness that has come to me through the gospel of Jesus. And they function in reality. Both the stories I've shared today are two couples that have, have revealed the power of confession, the forgiveness that comes, and the grace that can come through our lives when we actually put ourselves humbly before our King, recognizing that we can actually be the source of grace for others if we yield to Jesus which means that we don't hold grudges. What does it mean, oh man, what is good? What does God require? Well, first of all, the Scripture declares pretty clearly that there is none who is good, no, not one. So how is it that this verse can be fulfilled? It can only be fulfilled through the, through the acceptance of the forgiving work of Jesus on the cross. But when we accept Christ, when we actually yield ourselves to Him, the forgiveness of the Father comes to us through the work of the Son and empowers us by the renewal and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit so that we can now do justice. But what does justice mean for us in this age of grace? Justice does not mean now we have the power to go out and judge the world. 
No, justice for us means active witness. We are proclaimers of God's justice has been served through the sacrifice of Jesus. We are to give to the world the grace that is so unfair. Not because they deserve it, just like we don't deserve it, but because God chooses to give it because His one-way love is reckless in its pursuit of broken, sinful people. We do justice through our active witness, both in word and in deed. We are conduits of the mercy of Jesus, which brings me to the second thing. He says, in love, kindness, total mercy... Active witness, total mercy. Giving again and again to people around us what they do not deserve. When you are wronged, when you are hurt by another, do you hold on to the grudge? Do you want to make them pay? Or do you recognize that you deserve judgment just like everyone else and that Jesus has paid that price fully? Are you willing to accept His forgiveness so that you can offer forgiveness to the one who has wronged you? Or do you need forgiveness for the one you've wronged? Walk humbly. That is conscientious dependence. A daily recognition. This is what it means to live the Christian life. Spiritual maturity is not the ability to live sinless. Spiritual maturity is the ability to cast ourselves in total dependence upon King Jesus every day because we are sinners that are beloved and our forgiveness and our life and our power is dependent upon our transparency, our vulnerability, and our recognition of need. This is where the gospel actually plays itself out in power in our community. And see, what I want to help you guys recognize right now is that there may be areas in your life that are unconfessed for some of you. Sin that is not spoken out. Sin leaves the body through the mouth. Our ability to be witnesses to King Jesus is, is, is dependent, the power of our projection, if you will. To be able to project our voices means that we've got to get the blockage out of the way, which is the sin that goes unconfessed. And when we confess our sin to one another, humbling ourselves before God and before community, saying, I need the forgiveness of Jesus. I am a sinner and so are you. Let us be real before one another. And that allows us to actually deal gently with a broken world that needs to experience the peace of Christ. So for some of you, you need to confess sin. For others of you, you need to accept forgiveness or offer forgiveness confess sin and accept forgiveness and you know what every one of us have to do those two things all the time confess sin accept forgiveness if someone confesses to you sin offer them forgiveness you see what i'm saying how this works this is the radical grace of christ this is what it means to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. Because what Micah says about God is the reality of the God that we are dealing with. Who is like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. I love this. God covers our sins by the blood of Christ. So stop covering up your sins with lies. Be open, be real, be gentle, carry the grace of God, 
into a world that is so restless, so anxious, so guilty. You know, you must know, God loves you, and in Jesus, you are forgiven. Live in the power of that forgiveness. Depend upon that forgiveness every moment of every day. Amen? Let's pray.